0: Batteries that burn, doors that ding, and CE that rocks. Welcome to another episode of the Security Management Highlights Podcast from ASIS International. Every month we focus on the trends and topics the world needs to know about your world of keeping information and people safe. I am your host, Brendan Howard, and today we talk to three guests on three different topics touching on security. First, Adam Barrowy shares the dangers of lithium ion batteries and what you can do to make things easier for firefighters if they ever have to come to your facility to take care of an overheating and fire situation. Next, we talk to Matthew Porcelli, CPP, an ASIS volunteer and this year's chair for picking content for the big GSX Global Security Exchange Conference in Dallas starting September 11th. He tells us about peer-selected content and how that process works at GSX. And last but not least, we have Guy Blissner. Who works for the Idaho State Board of Education in School Safety and Security, and he thinks smaller bits of technology and changes to culture at schools could make a big difference in keeping kids and staff safe. So, first, lithium-ion batteries. Adam Barrowy is a research engineer at UL Fire Safety Research Institute, and he starts by telling us what is going on in these super convenient rechargeable dynamos that makes them more dangerous than the normal Cs, Ds, and AAA batteries we are used to.
1: So lithium-ion batteries are subject to a phenomenon called thermal runaway. Other batteries can have this, but not the batteries we're accustomed to, like the ones that you would, say, have in your TV remote. And so because you have all this energy density, what you have is basically an ordinarily stable electrochemical system storing energy. And when you destabilize that, you can do that a number of ways. Uh, A very common way is if it overheats. If it overheats to a certain point... There's a plastic electrical insulator inside the cell um, between layers of positive and negative anode and cathode, they call it. So that's sort of the thing that keeps your battery from shorting. If that melts or distorts, you can have a short inside the battery, which generates heat. And then once you start having chemical reactions inside the battery, break down that battery, they generate heat. And so what you have is this feedback loop where chemical reactions occur, they release heat that causes more chemical reactions to occur. This all happens in a very short time scale. And what that means is as soon as you get a short, you tend to have a thermal runaway almost instantly as far as you, as you the observer, will see. Another challenge is heat is not the only way. You've probably seen them, uh, like on YouTube, someone falls down a flight of stairs with their phone in their pocket and the phone bursts into flames. That's a crushing of the battery or Probably what's most on everyone's mind right now is e-bikes in New York City. That is far and away the nation's greatest challenge with lithium-ion batteries, and that is predominantly e-bikes, which have not been safety certified, being used uh, with mismatched chargers, and those chargers overcharge the battery. So it gets to 100% charge, and then it keeps going, and eventually that causes a breakdown inside the battery, and you get this thermal runaway and the the real hazard is that it puts out so much energy so quickly. We call that a fire, but it's basically just a release of energy.
0: In an average business, we're going to talk about kind of a non-typical business in a few minutes, but in the average business, where would security people have to think about there being lithium-ion batteries and that they should keep them in mind?
1: I that's a really good question. So Someone asked me a similar question once before, and I told them after thinking about it for a minute, that I have 21 devices in my home with lithium-ion batteries. <laughs> and I had to call them back and say, I actually have 32 because they're they're basically in everything. And, and so I don't want to contribute to fear-mongering about the batteries. Overwhelmingly, they're safe because they're in so many things that you don't even notice them anymore. And so in general, I would say anything that you know to be battery-powered, at this point, it's probably lithium-ion. And If anything has recently become cordless, go to Home Depot, there's cordless chainsaws, there's cordless leaf blowers. It all massively increases convenience of our products. At the same time, it introduces a low risk of something severe happening.
0: Why are typical fire prevention steps that have been used in the past for typical fires they're used to in their buildings or on their premises, why would those not be enough? and how how should security professionals think about shifting their pre-planning for the possibility of these kinds of fires?
1: There's a couple really good reasons for that. Um, if we look at a, a couple specific areas where batteries are being implemented, if you look at, say, for example, a server rack where maybe you have a um, one or a two unit sort of module of batteries slide in, The batteries themselves are inside an enclosure, and then that enclosure slid into the rack. So if you think about uh, an area where you might have traditionally sprinklered fire protection, the water from that sprinkler has a very hard time getting to where those cells are. That's kind of one arbitrary example, but it's emblematic of the overall challenge is that the packaging of the batteries, I could use as for another example, I could say the enclosure that goes around an e-bike battery. If you're directly spraying an e-bike battery that's in thermal runaway with water, the product enclosure keeps that water from getting to the cells which are going through this thermal runaway process and going on fire. So it's the traditional methods of fire suppression are challenged because of how enclosed the cells are. Another challenge is if we kind of take a look at uh, how fires traditionally grow, we expect certain growth rates out of fires. And actually in my industry, we even kind of have a standard curve where we could say like, this is a fast fire, a medium fast fire, a medium fire, slow fire, etc. cetera. Uh, what's a real challenge is this propagation of thermal runaway process where like one cell goes into the thermal runaway, it heats up the one next to it, that gets hot enough to go into the thermal runaway. And so it's this kind of chain reaction. It's kind of like the... Uh, like the fireworks almost, and like a like Chinese New Year, if you look at the string of fireworks, it's kind of, it looks like that. That can happen in such a quick manner that our assumptions about the fire growth rate are, are challenged, they're wrong. And that's going back to New York City. We expect people have minutes to escape their homes when a fire starts. What we have found through our testing is that you can have 20 to 60 seconds before a room becomes fully involved in fire from an e-bike fire. So. Security professionals will need to be thinking about where are the batteries, how many are there, have they been evaluated for safety, and if you have to get to that location quickly, or I think, you know, the, the conversation that we've had more recently is, how can security professionals work with their local fire departments to more quickly enable first responders to, to very quickly get to and limit the damage that's being caused?
0: I did think that was interesting about your article. I thought maybe the emphasis would be, hey, security professionals, you need to understand how to arrange these rooms and all that stuff. But it really focused on making sure the lanes are wide enough for the trucks to get in where they need to go to this battery-filled room and sort of saying the fire professionals have been briefed and have experience working with these battery fires. You need to make it easier for them to get there. So is that the focus? Better lanes, quicker access to the room? What do security professionals need to think about?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the the gentleman that I worked with that article, uh, Battalion Chief Jason Dodson, I mean, we both agree that, uh, that security is paramount. We don't want to see any degradation of security or, or giving that up to enable the fire service to respond. But it would be instead of learning about how all of a sudden first responders will be learning about or, or encountering some policies for entering a facility at the gate, Working that out in advance, we can say if we do have an emergency, these are the boxes we need to check to make sure we're not creating a security issue while we most quickly address the emerging fire issue. And because time is always of the essence in a fire emergency, but with faster growing fires from lithium-ion batteries, potentially, it really is very, very important that they get in as quickly as possible and locate the area of the problem as quickly as possible. So. That's kind of the thrust of the article is uh, a few suggestions on on pre-planning uh, between fire departments and security professionals on on how to work that out. It's all about before the incident, really.
0: Is there a particular one as you thought it out with this battalion chief? Was there a particular one from your experience, maybe thinking about fire safety and talking to security folks and his experience working with uh, fire prevention and fire suppression professionals, was there a particular sticking point that seemed to come up a lot with buildings that security professionals could address
1: first? I actually think there was kind of two sticking points. So one is this having a pre-negotiated access to the site. So again, it's it's the bottleneck at the gate, getting through that process quickly. The other one that uh, we haven't really touched on yet is markings in the building. So with With the size of data centers, that's the that's the particular application we're talking about in that article. They can be extremely large. Their layout can be very confusing to first responders, to the point where thus far, uh, Chief Dodson has had multiple crews where one crew finds where the incident is, and then they radio to a crew from outside who can come in with fresh bottles of air and kind of work more efficiently. So marking at the facility that first responders can use is very important. And that's really a backup in addition to being able to identify who the security professionals are or or say a building engineer that is going to interface with the fire service and be able to communicate with them how to get to that site. I know Jason has been particularly worried about, because this is always how incidents work out. Um, It's always 2.30 in the morning. It's probably on a holiday. And there's probably recently some staff changes and, and the new guy's working. <laughs> it's it's always everything, yeah. you know, culminates in the worst case scenario. And that person uh, overzealously perhaps goes to investigate this um, supervisory or trouble signal and investigates the smoke. If they become knocked down by those smoke conditions from this battery fire, then not only does the fire department not have that, that knowledge of how to transit the facility to get to where the problem is. But now they're also worried about committing resources to rescuing that person as quickly as possible.
0: Adam's upcoming article is a partnership with a local fire battalion chief. And that sounds like a good approach to this situation, partnership. Don't give up on security, but talk beforehand about a plan to help fire crews get faster to those clusters of batteries that could be on fire. Okay, let's turn the heat down a little bit now and just talk about CE, peer selected content at the upcoming GSX in Dallas. Matthew Porcelli walks us through the process of how a pitch for a session gets picked.
2: Just like there's different layers of protection, you have your frontline security, and then you move inward towards the the principal or the the protected entity. There's a blind review first with the membership it's, it's selected by members for members. That's the main point here. It's, so it starts with a blind review. After that, it's reviewed now. Me as the chair of the, the year selection committee for GSX is then we sit down virtually. I mean, it used to be in person. Then after COVID, it was more pragmatic also in, in a benefit because we were able to connect more with our global chapters for five days, two hours each day. So 10 hours, I believe that's 10 hours a week for one week we have to delve into the topics and there's certain uh, uh, criteria that we look at. A lot of people are spending a lot of money taking a lot of their own, either their company time or their uh, personal time to come in and network and be educated by these sessions. So it, it's it's a wonderful archeological dig of knowledge. <laughs> at either that, maybe not at
0: the blind stage, but when the people get together to really delve into this, do you make tweaks or suggestions or is it just like we're just tweaking for spelling and grammar? If we like the session, we like the session. We're not going to change anything about it.
2: Personally, I became more or less one of those guys that corrects like it should be well then good. But um, <laughs> right. things happen. People are, are human. Um, so if it's a recurrent grammatical error, then that may put a red flag on it what we were looking for is we don't want any copy and pasting from the previous year. We don't want any, you know, cause again, keep in mind, we we got 85 different, you know, there's 85 other countries around the globe that we had a, an increase, which I'm extremely proud of for G for these submission propo- proposals, increased 144 from some more nations that ASIS chapters in that, that are maybe not as been as vocal. So you know we have to be cognizant as the the selection committee that we may have people that are English is not their first language right and I think and I think also uh, brandon that's also why it's important to have a very diverse group of reviewers because then those individuals, whether mm-hmm. in the um you know usually the blind review you know it'll get they they may know it, it'll get pushed up and say we like for example we have a um uh, we have an individual on our team who's from uh he's based out in, uh, in Thailand. Maybe the vernacular itself is different. So that, that one of that committee member may be able to shed some light on somebody like me from New Jersey who may not be aware of that. Cause I mean, I've been, I've, I've traveled but I've never been out there. So it's always good to have, we're like the UN of the, of the group, you know? Does it feel like there are some big themes at GSX this year
0: that are different from last year that have you excited?
2: Topics I'm personally excited for is the convergence between the human factor, even though you know since i'm I'm a private security manager, but I also want to see how technology can be leveraged in the convergent process to mitigate threats and protection. Enterprise security risk management, ESRM, which is something that I am very, very keen on, will always be a staple at these uh, at GSX. Um, but also a lot of, you know, with the tragedies we've had with the recent shootings, you know, you know, in uh, specifically in in, uh, in Nashville uh, back in March, you know, a lot of the crisis response management planning, soft skills, active shooters, the melting pot is phenomenal. It's unlike any other organization I've ever seen. So it's almost like, you know, think of yourself like a kid in a candy store. You know, <laughs> you want to know, Brenda, you want know my biggest issue with this is I can't be in three presentations at once.
0: What? You haven't signed up for GSX in Dallas yet? To find out what Matt and his team picked for this year? You can find it at gsx.org. Speaking of trying to improve security in America, schools. Guy Blissner has worked for years on the issue of school security. And he says technology is great, but technology usually works. Where's the big failure? The adults and the culture of safety at schools, or lack
1: of it.
3: 90% of security failures at school are human failures. They're not systems failures. Equipment doesn't fail us very often. People fail us fairly consistently. And because we're running up against two competing mandates in, in education, The creation of a warm, open, welcoming educational environment where kids and parents feel encouraged to engage in that educational process and create a secure environment for society's most precious asset. The two run into loggerheads fairly often. The other one that it is is security and convenience are polar opposites. They always have been. The more secure something is, the less convenient it will be. And inconveniencing teachers when they already have 103 things on their plate is a certain way to end up with systemic failure in a security process. I've got a slideshow that I run when I do presentations that has 160 pictures of something holding a door open. In one case, there's a big sign that says this door must remain locked and closed at all time. And there's a rock in the door painted in school colors so you don't throw the rock away.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so people, again, all with good intentions, as you said, these, these competing values are in conflict. And so people every day having to balance between that. Is this an individual person thing or is it really an entire culture that has to be fostered by the entire group
3: it's both okay quite frankly and i'm i'm doing some study right now for uh, an eventual dissertation god willing on the connection between what took place in industrial security in the 20s and 30s in that manufacturing setting in the days where, you know, people were losing fingers and hands and getting run over by machines and all of that stuff. Well, you now go by one of those places and you see 127 days without a lost time accident. That's a cultural shift. It's behavioral modification. And the way they got to that was over time. But there are some real parallels, I think, in how they accomplished what they did and how we need to start to change that cultural understanding. Of we have to have a security friendly school culture we also have to have an education friendly security culture and unfortunately many of my friends in the in the business the industry if you will they'll you know all you have to do is lock that door yeah but you know we have four modulars out back and the bathrooms inside Explain that to, you know, there are easy answers to very difficult operational questions. And those folks without educational context don't understand it. If you haven't taken a group of second graders to the bathroom, you don't get it.
0: Yeah, right. They thought the one construction port-a-potty would cover it and that we we could get around that. Let me ask you about that. If you kind of think about this 20s and 30s shift in culture for safety, I feel like the big pushback for that was obviously inertia. We've done this this way all the time. This seldom happens. It's not an issue. But efficiency, these things are going to slow us down, stopping the line, triple, quadruple checking things. These are going to slow us down. Are these the concerns in the educational establishment about you're making things harder for me to get my education stuff done? Or is it an overall sense that I don't like the way all this security feels? So how do the staffers feel about this?
3: It's both, quite frankly. If your security measure, whatever it may be, is intrusive of good educational process, you've already created a problem. Let's look, at, for example, at the locked classroom doors whenever it's student occupied. There is an ambient amount of movement that takes place in a school on an ongoing basis, going to the library, the, the, the bathroom, the OTPT speech, you name it, there's movement. If you are deeply and if the, the edict that comes down from on high is that the doors will remain locked when students are in there, the first time that somebody knocks and you have to give up that scintillating discussion of the quadratic equation to walk to the door and open it, that's annoying because it's 10 minutes to get them back to where you were to begin with. Now, the second time that happens, you're done. The kid next to it is going to throw the door open. You're going to say, Johnny, answer the door. What we've now done is put the children that we're trying to protect in the most exposed position, making the decisions on things that that they have no business making the decision on. So that's kind of the problem. And it's that's a microcosm of a great many of these problems that we deal with. The second one is that that convenience issue I just talked about, if you're coming in from your car and you've got two armloads of stuff and you have two more to take, you're going to prop the door open because you can't reach your key. And whether you remember to, to kick the rock out or not's an open question. So there are things that we need to do from a technological standpoint, put a localized door alarm on that so that it does what your what your car does. If you don't buckle your seatbelt, your car annoys you until you do. <laughs> if you have a localized door alarm that makes that eh, 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 noise, whoever's teaching next to that horrible racket will go kick the rock out. It's self-correcting. The other piece is you have to you have to engage the folks who have to do this. Give them the goal. We need our doors closed during with children. We need them locked. How do we accomplish this? Because if you just say, do it, there's no operational process that they're willing to embrace. If you engage them in the process, then they've got some skin in the game. And then you incentivize both the individual and the group as a whole. And by that, I mean, you know, and it has to be measurable and you can only do one thing at a time because you can't change it all. Let's pick the, the propped open building envelope perimeter doors. You go in and you sit down to people say, how do we fix this? They come up with an idea. You say, good. Now, first of all, there has to be both incentive and disincentive. Disincentive is this will be a part of your your annual review. Are you following protocol? Incentive will be if we as a group make it to, you know, for the first trimester, you get an extra half a day of paid leave. If we make it for two semester or two trimesters, you get a full day. And if we can go a whole year, everybody gets two. Way cheaper than a lot of things that you would do to try and keep them from doing what you don't want them to do anyway. But then you also incentivize the individual. And you've seen the guys who run around and they have, you know, 92 safety pins on their hat. It's the same thing. And teachers are if nothing else, they are geniuses at behavioral manipulation. Where do you think the blue star on the forehead came from? <laughs> so so you do those things. You say, you know, if you're part of this, you get to go to the safety luau, and you will recognize you with a plaque. And then in the in the faculty room, you put up progress towards the goal. Twenty-two days, we only need 17 more, so that there's you know, it has to be measurable. And that's the kind of thing that, some of this is difficult to measure, so the metrics can be slippery.
0: Doors that ding like a seatbelt chime, nice. Extra days for X number of days without a door propped open, sounds good. And hey, Guy also suggests offering kids candy if they can catch staffers or visitors without a proper tag or ID hanging around their neck or stuck to their shirt. So make it serious work and fun and get everybody on campus involved. And that is it for the latest episode of Security Management Highlights. Thanks to our guests Adam Barrowy, Matthew Porcelli, CPP, and Guy Blissner. If you're interested in reading more about these topics, check out the links in the show notes. And if you got excited about something here, share this with your friends inside and outside of security management. The world needs to know how vital and awesome this field is. And leave us a review wherever you listen to this podcast. We would appreciate it. You can find us at sm.asisonline.org. And hey, be safe out there.